You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we reached out to House and Senate leadership to explain why they pushed back on Governor David Ige's vetoes and what issues they felt they could kick off to the next session. Here's House Speaker Scott Psyche and Senate President Ron Kochi. It's all part of the process, and while the legislature has rarely exercised uh, veto overrides, uh, you know, it's something that we can do, and so there isn't any kind of rift uh, between the governor and myself, but certainly members of my caucus uh, and on the House side have worked hard on on these measures. And, uh, you know, this time with the amount he had on his list, we wound up with five that the members felt should take effect. We overrode the veto. A sixth one was just technically done. And, uh, you know, at this point, the democracy is working, uh, but it's not about any kind of rift with the governor. You know, we, we agree that there are, you know, that there are some bills that would not take action on because we felt that we could work on them in the next session that begins in January. One of the issues that did not override was funding for the Department of Education, being you know, the federal funds, the ARPA funds. That was something that we felt needed some more time. We'd like to work with the governor and with the DOE administration to see how we can you know, best use, use those, those funds. You know, the bill was Senate Bill 613 where uh, there was a lot of the education thing in it. Besides the uh, American Rescue Plan or ARPA funds, there's an educational directed money, ESSER funds, that were involved. And as we see the reopening of in-person instruction, clearly what we're going to be uh, monitoring closely in the interim going into the next session is how is that working? Uh, you know, that's critical in reopening the economy to have parents able to go back to work and not having uh, to provide the child care and be there to assist the students with with the schoolwork. So can we safely have students back in for in-person instruction? The other component with the in-person instruction, January 6th of last year, all 15 public schools on Kauai were beginning the Farm to School program. We were the first whole complex to try it. We had been going school by school, so being able to have uh, the DOE purchase locally produced food products you know, is dependent on, again, in-person uh, instruction and students having those meals at the school, so that really would play a key role in the recovery of the agricultural industry in Hawaii. And there was a lot of uh, criticism about the uh, plan to pay teachers a, a bonus. Some of the other public sector unions bristled at that. Now, that was something that was questioned, and we did not approve the override of that bill. Um, but at the same time, you know, we'll be asking the governor to meet with the teachers and if he can negotiate some kind of arrangement or agreement to address their concerns. The teachers felt that governor, the administration, did not fund a portion of their contract. And that's why they had come to the legislature to, you know, to get that funding directly from the legislature. Um, but, you know, under the law, the negotiations for employee contracts need to be done by, between the governor and the union this case, HSTA. So we'd like to see the governor meet in good faith with HSTA to see if they can resolve this. And if they can, 
then they can come back next year in January to um, request the funding for their agreement. And what's your hope for this next school year? I mean, we will be starting it with a new school superintendent and uh, a new uh, union head. First and foremost, we have a plan that winds up being safe for students to return and safe for all of the employees, and hopefully with some of the devices, and we're able to continue to either upgrade Wi-Fi in other areas or get hotspots to those who aren't connected. But it's clear, even if we're doing in-person instruction, the ability to have access to uh, the internet is critically important if we want to see our students succeed when they go home and do their homework and work on other assignments. I'm hopeful that the interim superintendent is going to have, you know, a good running start. Um, there's, there's a lot of issues that have to be addressed. And, you know, I've always felt that we have to use the pandemic to see how we can improve the current structure and operations. Um, I think learned a lot about, as the president just mentioned, about the need for more technology. I think virtual learning is something that we need to take, take advantage of because we do have a teacher shortage. But I, I think that there's a number of areas that the, the interim superintendent and the Board of Education can you know, start to you know, initiate next in, in August, when he starts in August. Yeah, and that's just a couple of weeks away. But one of the big overrides targeted tourism. Can you talk about why you felt uh, the need to... Uh, change the way HTA is funded? HTA is, I'm not sure, I think it's probably about at least been here around for about 25 years now. And I think this is a good time for us to uh, assess the role of HTA because when it was created 25 years ago, I think that its purpose may have been more for uh, marketing purposes, for promotion. I'm not sure if that is what is needed today. You know, one of the fundamental questions about HTA as well is whether or not HTA is, whether HTA's role is to be an advocate for the tourism industry. You know, because if it is, I think that should be made clear because, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult for us to get try to get concessions from HTA if they feel that their role is really just to be an advocate for the tourism industry. Um, you know, as it is, the state has a difficult time managing tourism because, you know, for one thing, we cannot limit the number of travelers to the state. That's something that is regulated by the federal government. The state has no control over the number of people that are that are entering the state. The HTA needs to help. We need to reassess its mission, and it needs to help us manage the kinds of impacts that we are now seeing, and that the public, you know, the, the public is growing more and more frustrated with. You know, one of the things HTA has helped fund is the reservation system at some of the state parks. So they've worked at K.A. Beach because of the flooding that had shut off uh, the North Shore or uh, K.A. Beach Park. And we now have reservations, a checkpoint permitting system of how you get there, why Napa Napa started. Uh, doing that where it's $5 to enter, $20 to park, and a PUC parking rate. They're looking at Diamond Head. Of course, there's fees at Hanauma Bay. And they're looking at places like Koke'e and the county of Kauai is looking at reservation systems. And so that's all part of the management and ensuring that the visitors are paying for the impacts they have on the natural resources. As well, the uh, program at Wainapanapa has been 
uh, proceeding well. There hasn't been complaints by visitors because they pay for the use of state parks across the United States. So we're not uniquely charging. And, you know, this is money that can be invested into management of the natural resource. And I think that's where the public, uh, you know, really expects it. And certainly the criticism of what the legislature did has come from the industry. But, uh, you know, we've also received the testimony saying that, you know, you need to reduce the money you're spending there. We need to manage the amount of people who are coming in. And as the speaker has said, even when this so-called reference to champagne tourists, we don't control it if they are discounting airfares and creating great hotel room deals, which we have no control over either. At that point, whoever can afford to buy the ticket, book the room, you know, winds up coming. And, uh, you know, for those that are coming on the bargain, well, then they probably have a more limited budget than those who would be able to fly at any time or fly in first class. We've been hearing a lot of squawking about the rental car prices because of the shortage. Do you think that's a, a, a way to be able to influence, you know, who comes here? Uh, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I drive from my house to Lehui Airport to return to Oahu, it's now a regular sight to see people with their bags walking on the highway. So I'm assuming uh, Royal Sinesta has a shuttle, so they're at some condo or vacation rental in the Nawiliwili Harbor area. And they're, they're walking there on social media. I see people have now started doing guided tours. And so for someone who gets to their hotel and then they don't have the rent-a-car, they're now hiring people. So there's a new industry until we get the rent-a-cars. And then some of the visitors, you know, clearly because of what they're doing, are unaware that this rent-a-car shortage exists and they've booked their flights and they're still coming. Speaker Psyche, how do you how are you looking at this? Yeah, so I think rental cars, you know, can, uh, managing rental car inventory is something that we do need to look at. Um, what you know, we're seeing more ride sharing companies that are, um, you know, increasing capacity here. So I'm not sure to what extent we're able. We have been successful in regulating the ride share companies. But you know, I think you know, I'd like to see at some point if we're going to continue to rely on rental cars, that you know, at some point we should require all rental cars to be EV vehicles, at least that that will help with with the environment here. Well, we might need a few more chargers. <laughs> we'll have the rent, we'll ask the rental car companies to help with that. No, and I just was going to say an interesting outcome, though, is most of the car dealership lots are empty, too. At least on Kauai, I've heard stories of, you know, individuals who've gone out and purchased cars because the weekly rates are so high and, uh, you know, they're either putting their vehicle into uh, companies like Turo or they're advertising on their own and, you know, be turning into a little rent-a-car enterprise by purchasing all of these vehicles. Well, I did just see uh, five new businesses created uh, that have to do with rent-a-cars across the state just last week. So, <laughs> yeah, people are seizing the opportunity. There's been some finger-pointing, I think, and uh, a couple of the uh, tourism chairs feel that the Department of Land and Natural Resources isn't doing enough to manage the state parks and trails. Do you agree with that? Well, DLNR, you know, they've been trying for several years to get legislative authorization to ch charge fees 
at um, public parks. It was only this past May that you know that the legislature approved that legislation. So you know, I'm hoping that ELNR will be able to expedite some kind of a program. They just put up an app about a couple of weeks ago uh, on this all of the state parks. Um, I think the app is going to be helpful in helping them to manage reservations and you know maybe limiting limiting numbers of people who are at the park. I believe with the app that we're we're coming out with as well as the reservation system and the fees that are being charged that we're going to generate the kind of money that DLNR will need uh, to be able to make the kind of investment in the natural resource that we haven't been able to make before there. Anticipating the fees from Wainapanapa alone may be about $3.5 million annually. And then as I mentioned, we're looking at Kokea, Diamond Head, and other parks. So we're we're hoping that we'll be able to generate between ten to twenty million dollars in fees that would be able to go back into the DLNR. And Catherine, if I could just add something really quickly, you know, something that the legislature is going to have to watch um, is the impact of new fees and access on Hawaii residents, because you know I think we are receiving more calls from Hawaii residents who are asking if they're going to have to be paying a lot more for using these, you know, for using parks or if access, their access is going to be limited. So while we're trying to, while we're trying to impose restrictions, we also have to watch out for the impact on Hawaii residents. At this point, you know, a lot of it is resource management. There is, you know, 60 million or so with HTA, they do have funds and they have an ability to do that. We certainly want to be sure all of the cultural activities are continued uh, and supported. Uh, organizations like VASH, uh, the money is there for them to continue those contracts. But I, I certainly hope that this gets everybody to the table. And, uh, you know, we look at how we're going to reset. In the 80s, I've gone out with the Visitor Bureau and the Kauai County and other counties to do the trade shows, and I've gone to Long Beach and stood for 10-hour days and met with people, bring the hula dancers and uh, musicians and everything else. And now they bring in influencers who have millions of followers and have them go on the zipline tour or eat at a restaurant and critique how it is, it's uh, ever-evolving and changing how we market, and uh, I think the legislature feels that uh, we need to take a different approach from uh, what we have been doing, and that uh, by making these changes, uh, we'll continue to be successful and see the outcome that the residents want. But the residents have not been happy if you look at the residents' uh, views on the polls that have been taken. We have been hearing from Senate President Ron Kochi and House Speaker Scott Psyche about their veto overrides and their hopes for the resetting of the Hawaii Tourism Authority and the return of the classroom in August. We plan to hear from School Superintendent Christina Krishimoto tomorrow to continue the conversation about the return to the classroom for our public school students and teachers.
you're listening to the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Barack Obama is the first and only president of the United States born in Hawaii. And as you may know, he graduated from Punahou School in 1979. He was a member of the boys' varsity basketball team. And as of late last year, Obama's number 23 Punahou basketball jersey sold for a whopping $192,000 at a recent auction. It was the most money ever paid for a high school basketball jersey. During his time in the Oval Office, Obama made plenty of trips back to his home state, with many of them coming close to Christmas time. And during these vacations, Obama was frequently spotted at Island Snow, a shave ice and clothing apparel shop in Kailua. After a few visits, the shop created a flavor for the 44th president of the United States called the Snowbama, which is made with three different types of flavored syrups. So for today's backyard quiz, can you name them all? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. Civil Beats Reality Check segment today focuses on rail. Lots of developments on the horizon. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? You know what? Let's start with what happened on Friday, the bombshell about the heartboard chair. Yeah, right. This was kind of what what we would say in the business, uh, a Friday afternoon news dump, right? When (laughs) things that are maybe less than pleasurable come out, just uh, put them out late Friday when uh, you're not going to get as many eyeballs or readers or whatnot. So basically, uh, Hart announced on Friday afternoon that the agency's chairman of the board, Toby Martin, this is a volunteer board again, uh, but he's been on the board for several years and he was resigning for personal reasons. And that is as much detail as has been provided. Uh, I reached out to Toby shortly after Hart made that announcement via press release, and he didn't want to go into any more detail. But this is happening. Again, rail is just kind of a continuous string of, um, you know, issues and and concerns. But uh, for the board right now, uh, they were facing some scrutiny in recent months over several things. But one of the, the key things was these uh, two consultancy contracts, uh, one for one on the local 
level and one on the federal level. The local level one uh, gained a lot of uh, attention because it was awarded to former U.S. Representative Colleen Hanabusa, who also served as the Hart Board Chair before she went back to Congress. Um, uh, Hanabusa later reneged that contract amid some of the attention, and now she is on the board herself. So there's all sorts of musical chairs. And look, it's, like I said, it's a volunteer board. Um, this this position, it's, it's oversight. It's important. Uh, it's also kind of largely ceremonial, but nonetheless, it it really kind of shows a lot of the um, the upheaval that continues to uh, characterize a lot of Hart's operations. Right. So you you wrote up a story uh, about that on Friday. You've got another story running today, just on the the <laughs> the, the difficulty that they face. You know, in the last leg of the rail route uh, with the utilities, because you know we've covered lots of city hall stories, and and we know that uh, the city is, doesn't really know for sure where all the utilities sit. I mean, they can say, this is what the records show us, but when when you go digging around there, it could be something else. Right. So I have a story out today. It's it's not exactly breaking news that the utilities pose a challenge and there's a lot of mystery. Uh, but one of the things that really pegged, it, it, well, really kind of prompted me to write this and, and piqued my interest was the recent 42-inch main, uh, uh, there was a construction mishap there over by the Wanalua uh, Freeway, over by the Fort Shafter off-ramp, um, where crews that were building a new sewer for the Army accidentally hit one of these 42-inch mains. You know, those are the largest ones in the Board of Water Supply uh, in their, their um, you know, in their system. And there's basically two of these 42-inch mains, the one that, that the crews working for the Army hit, and this other one that runs along Dillingham, uh, which could pose a lot of challenges and obstacles for the rail project. And so for me, this was almost like a, you know, a real-life um, exercise, right, of what could happen down the line once the, the rail construction starts full throttle on Dillingham. Right. And Lori Kaikina's background, you know, is with uh, environmental services, you know, dealing with sewer pipes. Uh, but yeah, all uh, water lines are important too. Yeah. I mean, even if you were to just kind of, you know, chip or, or slightly hit this water line, uh, you know, th- this supplies so much of, uh, I think it's about a quarter of urban Honolulu's water. Uh, so yeah, even just the slightest uh, nick of that thing could lead to some major problems. Right. So there's the, the, uh, the hard stuff when it actually comes to digging around uh, on that rail route and, and uh, you know, with the situation with Toby uh, Martin stepping down, I think, I think Joe Uno's position over there on the heart board is uh, his term is also up. So lots to look at at their, their next meeting. Yep, always keeping me busy on rail. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll have to see uh, Yeah, what, what shakes down. But thanks so much, um, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. You can read Marcel Henri's coverage with the rail project at civilbeat.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, with ways for the community to help conserve water during the hot summer months when rainfall is low but demand is high. Seven ways to conserve water at boardofwatersupply.com. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Healthcare Centers, providing primary care at 11 locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808-691-8200. The NBA Finals are in full swing, and the NFL is getting ready to open training camp next month. That puts professional athletes back in the spotlight. With that can come intense pressure from owners, families, and fans. With the passing of former University of Hawaii quarterback Colt Brennan two months ago, questions continue to be raised about how high-profile athletes can deal with those high expectations. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with a local sports psychology consultant and a former professional athlete from Oahu to learn more. Second and short, Brennan to throw again, far side. It is caught by Grice Mullen for a touchdown. Brennan throws, that is complete to Ross Dickerson, leaping for the end zone, touchdown. Brennan, complete to Biss, touchdown Hawaii. 2007 was a record-setting year for University of Hawaii quarterback Colt Brennan. The Rainbow Warriors finished the regular season undefeated, ranked 10th in the nation, and earned a berth to the Sugar Bowl. His star was on the rise, but after a 41-10 loss in the bowl game, his athletic career never rebounded. In 2010, he was involved in a car crash on the Big Island, which took the life of one person and left him with a traumatic brain injury. And in the years that followed, he was arrested several times for various offenses, how someone so beloved and celebrated could fall in such hard times may never be fully understood. But I was curious as to how the pressures and expectations that come with being a high-profile athlete can affect them. I called sports psychology consultant Daryl Oshiro to get his perspective. The biggest challenge with expectation is what society has created for the professional athlete. And what I mean by that is unless you perform, you're, you're not worth anything. But what, what makes it really interesting is the fact that if you look at how much a professional athlete makes, it's an amazing amount. But by the same token, because it's such a big amount, once you get there, it's almost like, like a drug. You want that, I want to make this kind of money. And then all of a sudden, you feel like you have to make this kind of money. And then it becomes like, okay. I can't live without this. I got to keep going and I got to keep going. But the challenge with expectations is you can control that. 
if another person has a high expectation on you, you can choose whether to accept that and use it as a motivation or just say, you know what, I need to be me. I need to be the best gal I can be. And if I can do that, then it's all good. But because we start living for other people's expectations and trying to control that, it makes it even more difficult. Do you think with all the different kinds of personalities that people have when they go into athletics, do you think there are people out there that are a little bit more predisposed to succumbing to pressure and expectation? Do you think there's a type out there that has to be especially aware when they get into sports? Well, to be honest, I think this generation is all in danger of falling into that trap. And the reason why is because of social media. Every day they can read about who said what about them. And that in itself can create negativity. That in itself can create pressure. That in itself can create a destructive mindset. Instead of going, you know what, I need to just control what I can control and go out there and do the best I can to prepare, not only physically, but mentally for this competition. And once it's done, it's done. I'm going to let it go and then continue to prepare for the next opportunity. Then it becomes a lot simpler. But once you start focusing on what the media is saying, what other people are saying, it just makes it harder. And that's, that's the biggest challenge because everyone's comparing themselves to somebody else. Back in the day when there wasn't such a thing as the internet or you know getting information from all these different sources, it was a lot easier. So because it's gotten to the point where there's so much information out there, I don't know how much of it is true or how much of it is just things to generate a story it makes it a little harder. And that's why people fall into these traps. There's no question the internet and social media has had a significant impact on our lives, and they impact us all in different ways. I had the opportunity to talk to Jesse Sapolu, who played football at the University of Hawaii from 1979 to 1982. He also played for over a decade with the San Francisco 49ers and is one of the co-founders of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. He gave me his thoughts on how the internet and social media impacts athletes today. Well, there's advantages in that even the marginal players people know about, you know, because of social media. Everybody has access to some type of media. But the downside to that is people can call for you being cut because they have their own individual opinion. You know, mm-hmm. back when I played, but you don't hear about the opinion of every individual. Right. Mm-hmm. Like now, you know, if someone like a Marcus Mariota, if he has a bad game, you're going to hear thousands of people with their own opinion saying he might not be the right guy or Tua might not be the right guy. Just using our kids as an example, those type of things you never heard before because people didn't have access to share their their individual opinions. Now, now they do. So it brings a lot of pressure. And I think that's the downside of having social media. People are not as patient. But that's the world we live in right now. So how can a professional athlete manage the pressures and expectations in a healthy way? I asked Jesse how he managed them during his career, whether he relied on his family or inner circle or sought professional help. Not really. I I always reach back to my Samoan upbringing, my my upbringing in Hawaii. You know, be humble, but you got to be tough as nails. I think the advantage that I had, too, is that I came in as an 11th round draft choice. and I. I felt like I was better than people that they chose way before me. So I came in my rookie year to prove a point. I think that took away some of the nervousness. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because I was the underdog and I wanted I wanted to buck all of the odds that were against me. And I think that was an advantage for me because it took away some of the nerves. I know that you're one of the founders of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. And I imagine that you interact with a lot of the inductees and the, the young kids that you're looking at. I know you guys have a collegiate football player of the year. Is there an opportunity there for you to talk to some of the younger guys, mentor them a little bit? And if there is, what kind of advice do you give them? We remind them that there were people that broke that door down before them to have that opportunity. I remind them that when I played, there was only six of us. Now we're close to 100 NFL Polynesian players. We're close to 1,000 in college in all levels. So I, I want them to understand that despite the fact that I won four Super Bowls, that the foundation of how I carried myself is, is really my upbringing as a Polynesian kid, which is you're humble, humility is big, be respectful of your elders. It's because of the root and foundation of your upbringing, you know, the Polynesian way. And that's culture is very, very important. Faith is important. And that's what we're rooted on. And and hopefully with these kids making, you know, 50, 60, 70 million dollars during their contracts, that it doesn't change them in that in that way. While there are thousands of professional athletes in the world today, there are hundreds of thousands more children, teenagers, and young adults competing in sports and chasing a dream of being able to do what they love professionally. How do parents put their kids on a path to be able to deal with pressure and expectation? What do they tell their kids? Here's Daryl Oshiro again. You know what? Just be the best person you can be today. And tomorrow, be a better person than you were yesterday. And keep working on that. Keep driving. Keep staying motivated to be the best person you can be. And if you do that, then you can live a happy and amazing life. So with all the potential for external distractions and pitfalls, what, what's the most important thing an athlete can do to stay on the right path? Is it having a good support system or inner circle? Is it meeting regularly with a mentor or coach or a counselor? What, what, what do you think is the most important thing they can do? I think all athletes have several options. What I tell athletes is if they can develop a good support group, that would be huge. But that's kind of difficult because there's not too many coaches out there that are going to be that, you know what, just go out there, do the best you can, and it's okay. Regardless of the outcome, it's okay. There's very few individuals out there that can be that kind of support. So what I tell athletes is, Number one, you have to be your own best friend, someone that you can trust, someone that's always there to say, dude, you did a good job today, regardless of the outcome. Tomorrow's another day. Let's continue to work hard. Biggest challenge with that, instead of having our best friend in our head, we have our worst enemy. And that guy is created by society. I tell people, you want to live an amazing life, you need to be in a less than 1%. You need to be thinking what everyone else is not thinking. If you feel something negative, ask yourself, is this how most people would respond? And if the answer is yes, then you need to change it. Why? Because the less than 1% of the people out there that are successful are doing things differently. Sure, they still make mistakes, but they don't hang on to it. They let it go. They move on. That's how you live amazing. 
That was sports psychology consultant Daryl Ushiro and former San Francisco 49er Jesse Sapolo talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. HPR's Dave Lawrence talks with astronomer Christopher Phillips about new exciting discoveries to be found in something as simple as data. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also what we can try and spot in our dark skies as usual. Thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal. He's right here on the line. Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, both Mars and Venus, will be visible in the western sky after sunset. They should be easy to spot as they are the two brightest objects in that area of sky. The moon this week will gradually become brighter as the week goes on as it approaches its first quarter phase. And this week, you've got information on one of the largest ever astronomical surveys, is that correct? Yes, the Zwicky Transit Facility, or ZTF as it's more commonly known, is one of the largest astronomical surveys ever conducted, covering the northern hemisphere and the galactic plane. ZTF looks for transient astrophysical phenomena, or quite simply, objects that vary in brightness over very short timescales. And the survey has just published its sixth data release, which includes billions of objects from the most recent survey. In this astronomical treasure trove are supernovae, active galaxies, transiting exoplanets, dwarf novae, and pretty much anything else that goes bump in the night. Is this kind of similar to that PANSTARS survey here in Hawaii, Chris? In some ways it is. The scientific focus of PANSTARS has been the detection of near-Earth asteroids, but due to the wide-field nature of the survey and the extreme sensitivity of PANSTARS instruments, it's inevitable that other objects will get caught up in the net. CTF, on the other hand, is looking specifically for variable objects in the night sky, which inevitably ends up capturing some solar system objects, such as asteroids. So there is some overlap for sure. And what ends up happening with all the data they got together here? Well, it's up to us to identify objects of interest within the ZTF data. Some astronomers will be looking for supernovae, others will be looking for active galaxies, and then there's astronomers like me who will be looking to classify some of the more unknown sources in the data. And is this the kind of thing you need to do with a uh, large telescope? Indeed it is. One of the more difficult tasks is performing follow-up observations with larger telescopes, such as those atop Mauna Kea, to get more detailed information on what's out there. And none of this will help with that recent government report about those strange objects we've been seeing, right? <laughs> Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay. And uh, it does seem like we've got a lot more data than we uh, know what to do with in astronomy these days. Well, yeah, you're not wrong. It's definitely an issue. And more and more these days, we're employing methods such as machine learning to help us classify objects in these large data sets because there's just too much data for any one person to handle. Sounds like somebody could miss something in there. Are the uh, robots likely to be stealing your job? <laughs> not quite yet. I say with a hint of nervousness in my voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not. We'll be counting on you here. Christopher Phillips and another fun Stargazer. Thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of shave ice. The iconic dessert has been a staple in our island since the mid-1800s and a favorite of former U.S. President and Oahu native Barack Obama. While in the uh, Oval Office, he made several trips back home and was well-known for making stops with his family at Island Snow, a shave ice and apparel store in Kailua. It created a custom treat for him called the Snow Obama. If you're a frozen dessert fan or a history buff, you probably know the Snowbama consisted of three flavors, cherry, lemon lime, and passion guava. Uh, no winners today. We stumped you on that one. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. We were talking about tourism at the top of the hour. You know, the state has averaged above 30,000 daily visitor arrivals so far in July. So it stands to reason. Are there more creepy crawlers hitching a ride? If you do happen to bring along something harmful to our ecosystem, you can surrender it in one of the amnesty bins posted at airport exits. That's right. Just chuck your item in the bin. No questions asked. But how well does this system really work? The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Jonathan Ho, the acting manager of the plant quarantine branch, to talk about what ends up in those amnesty bins. There's been one instance of somebody who actually dropped a snake in it, a ball python. Uh, <laughs> this was way in the 90s. So, I mean, it, it does work. You would think that this box that looks like a trash can, there's no way anybody's going to ever throw anything in there. And we've had uh, a snake dropped in, in it. Ever since then, we have not received a, that type of, um, of a commodity. But um, we do get prohibited fruits and vegetables, pineapples. Florida citrus, radishes, uh, turnips, things like that. But generally, like live animals, most people don't bring them with them on planes because one, they can't. Most airlines won't allow things like snakes and lizards, things like that. And uh, the advent of TSA has kind of really precluded people from bringing all these kinds of weird things on planes. Another thing about the amnesty bin, which makes them somewhat useful, unlike a person, is they're non-confrontational. You can put whatever you want in there, no questions asked, no one will ever know. And they also serve as a good reminder for people that Hawaii is different, kind of in conjunction with the ag farm. You know, you get on the plane, you see this ag farm, you're like, why do I have to fill this agriculture farm? And, you know, when you come in, you know, Hawaii is different. And the form and then seeing this bin, it's like, wow, these guys are putting all these things in to try to protect what they have. And I think and a lot of people, especially nowadays, are very cognizant of, you know, trying to maintain Hawaii as a, this tropical place free of you know, all these invasive things. And that, you know, putting their apple, even if it's low risk, into the bin is their way of being part of the solution. 
yeah, we get stuff in them daily. Like on Oahu, I think you were getting, you know, 60, 70 pounds every couple of days of stuff. It's, it's not like insignificant. It's, it's pretty hefty amounts of stuff. What happens to the stuff? If we can determine that it's free of pests, um, we do have animals in our office that are, you know, confiscated. So we can use them for animal feed. Um, if not, we, we destroy the, we destroy the goods. Yeah, we don't like eat them or anything like that. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's either animal feed or it's destroyed. So the invasive animals are getting the invasive plants to eat full cycle? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Animal importation is heavily regulated by our office. So we do get illegal animals through amnesty or, you know, through confiscations or investigations. One of the things that we want is we want people, regardless of how they got them, to give them up rather than let them go. And part of that entails not killing anything because, you know, people know that we're going to be euthanizing animals that they turn in. They're not going to give them up. They're just going, I, I don't want this snake. I'm going to let it go. Or I don't want this lizard. I'm going to let it go. We'd rather them give it to us. But um, it, it does take a lot of time and money and effort um, and, you know, supplies to, to maintain those animals. Having this free supply of some, some of it we can use um, for some of the animals it, it is helpful. I know that in 2017, the state enacted a 10-year biosecurity action plan. Mm -hmm. In light of that kind of wide-reaching, highly considered strategy, something like the amnesty bin almost feels a little bit quaint. What do you think the role of this kind of honor system is in ensuring that Hawaii's borders are protected from different types of invasive species? The honor system, unfortunately, unfortunately, does leave a lot to be desired. But again, uh, going back to it's always working regardless of whether you, you are or not. And the entire Department of Agriculture gets less than 0.4% of the entire state budget. And plant quarantine is, is an even smaller portion of that. So when you look at the mandate and how huge it is and what's at stake, we just aren't set up fiscally to be able to be everywhere at the same time. The objective of your office is very serious in terms of keeping Hawaii's ecosystem safe and keeping it preserved. And you are one of the first lines of defense. Do you feel like your office has the resources it needs to successfully protect Hawaii's biosecurity? That's a very loaded question. Yes and no. The, the basic principles and techniques for quarantine and you know maintaining biosecurity exist. The issue is how much resources is anyone willing to really put in to achieve whatever the the expected level of protection is. One of the challenges for our office is somewhat of a dueling mandate with regards to, you know, we are mandated to protect agriculture and to protect the environment and to protect human health and animal health and safety. And, you know, agriculture, depending on the type of agriculture, doesn't necessarily jive completely with environmental protection. Uh, what's a good example? Tilapia for aquaculture. You know, the governor, you know, wants to produce food. Aquaculture and tilapia are viable industries that can potentially help achieve that goal. 
but they're also invasive. We are here to, you know, promote and to protect an agricultural industry that could be, if done wrong or, um, you know, somebody intentionally let them go, affect the environment. You know, if we went straight environmental protection, you're going to ban tilapia. And at that point, now you have all these people that are now economically out of business. The governor, you know, you cannot provide this type of food. And, um, you know, w- where that line is, you know, is, is you know, kind of always shifting. And it, it's one of those things where you're trying to manage all sides of the issue at the same time. And it's, um, that, that's kind of what makes it real challenging. When you put it in those terms, I'm just thinking of, of the scale of your objectives, truly. This is something that you have to actively chip away at every day. And I feel like we have equipped your office with a spoon to dig a channel. <laughs> We're like, here, have an amnesty bin. If there was a tool that would really make a dent in the work that you're doing, do you know what that would be? It's probably something that doesn't exist, but the regulatory structure that we're set up with, you know, all the framework, all the rules and all the regs were created in a time where e-commerce did not exist. 20 years ago, overnight stuff was too expensive or didn't occur. You had these boats or the speed of transportation has increased the ability for things to get places that it could never get before. And the internet in conjunction with that has given people the idea that, hey, I want this weird plant or this strange fish or whatever it may be that they would never have been able to know about before. That access to information and the speed of transportation is the biggest problem. And coming up with this like magic codex that had all of our regs and you could just upload it into everybody's e-commerce site. It would run it through this magical thing and poof, sorry, it, you can't ship it. And then you can use what little manpower you have for the things that need to be inspected, that need to be cleared and whatever, the, the, the known things, you know, because right now we're always trying to deal with the unknown. Uh, we have inspectors that go to FedEx and UPS on a daily basis to clear all the agricultural goods that come through. Each company guessing, you know, they're bringing in, you know, tens of thousands of parcels on a daily basis, you know, in, in Honolulu, at least um, for FedEx, there's three people for all of Oahu on a daily basis, everything that's shipped through FedEx to make sure that there isn't people smuggling, and then inspecting all the things that are actually known agricultural commodities. And, you know, when you have three people, we'll say 30,000 boxes, you have 10, you're doing, you're, you're scanning 10,000 boxes and conducting an inspection in a three hour window. That's what you're dealing with. Then you deal with like Mother's Day, for example, cut flowers. Everyone has a mother and most people have more than one. And, you know, you have, you know, 1500 boxes of flowers on a daily basis in the mother's day every day each inspector's you know 1500 boxes 12 to 1500 boxes of flowers you're going through them making sure that they're free of pests so it's just a lot more work for us to deal with all of those particular shipments that's just kind of the nature of the beast 
That was the conversation Savannah Harriman Pope speaking with Jonathan Ho, acting manager of the Plant Quarantine Branch of the Department of Agriculture. Guess what? We're out of time. Tomorrow we plan to sit down with outgoing school superintendent Christina Kishimoto. It's a call-in show, and we invite you to join the conversation. Call our talkback line or email your questions or call in live. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.